Goodquest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have John Bly as a returning guest on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. John, you are such a deal maven, whether it's doing deals for yourself, for clients, writing books about it, et cetera. Um, you know, and we did hear from uh, you on episode seven about the 14 deals you did to grow your firm. Um, what are we going to hear about on this return episode of DealQuest? I think, Corey, it will hear a little bit about what's happened in the last few years, what, what's going on in the M&A market and how uh, our firm has changed its strategy and done some different things in the last couple of years. And then, uh, you know, we've recently had some announcements on some deals and we'll probably go through those as well. I love it. Yeah. And folks, just to tease it a little bit more, after being an acquirer for many, many years, uh, John became a seller and now he's and, and in the new firm, he's an acquirer again. So, uh, you know, so we, we, you're going to get to hear that. And listen, John's uh, journey is very instructive. And, uh, you know, and he, uh, he sort of, um, you know, takes his own teachings and, you know, uh, eats his own, whatever that phrase is, you know, so what he teaches clients, he does for himself. So, uh, you know, uh, definitely check out the upcoming episode of DealQuest with John Black. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest listeners and viewers, I'm so excited to have John Bly back as a returning guest on the DealQuest podcast. He was on episode seven, believe it or not, back in March of 2019. This is going to be episode 140 something. Um, so, and, you know, some things have evolved. So if you are John Bly, you study the methods that the PE firms and larger corporations employ to identify growth opportunities through mergers and acquisitions. Then you use those principles to scale your business and write best-selling books uh, to share your experiences. Of the hundreds of merger and acquisition success stories that John Bly can tell, the most compelling story may be his own. John left the security of his big four position to start an accounting firm that he scaled into one of the fastest growing privately held companies in North Carolina, landing on the Inc. 500-5000 list five years in a row. John engineered the firm's growth both organically and through M&A, merging 14 firms, ultimately leading to a combination with the top accounting firm, Aprio LLP, where he now uh, serves as regional managing partner for the Carolinas. He's also the author of Cracking the Code, which is a phenomenal book. I recommend it. Go check it out. And, uh, you know, in the last episode, uh, you know, when, when we last left off with John Bly, um, he, we talked about those 14 acquisitions and how he's grown his firm. But in between now and then is when he did, did the deal to sell his firm. And then we will get into uh, just two days ago, uh, they did, uh, led by John, a, a major acquisition of their own. So we have some great updates with John. Um, and John, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Corey. I'm excited to be back. And uh, I can't believe it's only been a couple of years, but it feels like 
10 in some ways, given what's going well, on exactly. in the world. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Pandemic years are very different than regularly, <laughs> like dog years, right? And, um, cr- and crazy M&A years, right? Not just, oh, crazy not, years. Not oh. just for, uh, for us internally, but for, uh, the, for the M&A profession as a whole, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so John, uh, you know, my opening questions back at episode seven were a little, I think one of them was the same and one of them was different. So I'm going to ask them to you anyway, because it's been a while and, uh, you know, folks might not have, uh, folks, you should go back and, and listen to episode seven. I mean, we're going to touch a little bit on, you know, the same ground in terms of what got John here, but we're going to focus mostly on what's happened since. So definitely check out his original episode. But John, so remind people, um, you know, my opening question is, hey, what did you want to be as a kid when you're growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old? Um, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, did you always want to be an accountant? Was that your dream as a kid? It was, it really was my dream to be an accountant, uh, somewhere in that 10, 11 year old range. My dad was an accountant. Um, now I'm not sure I barely qualify probably as an accountant. Now I'm more That's of right. an M and a entrepreneur, business owner, consultant advisor, rather than a true accountant. But, um, I found a way to make it significantly more entrepreneurial as I grew up than, uh, than maybe the, the stereotypical accountant. How about that? I love it. I love it. And, you know, and back on episode seven, uh, my, my second question was about your first business. So, John, my, my second question now is different than uh, what, what I used to ask when I asked, hey, what, what was your first, you know, business or entrepreneurial experience? Um, now I ask, what is your first deal that you can remember of any type, whether it was when you were a kid or later in life, whatever comes to mind? I'd say that the first deal that I can really truly remember is probably the one that I did that got me out of the corporate world in 2004. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the, you know, the funny thing there is it all started with the back of a journal of accountancy. This is 2004. So this is for, for those <laughs> of your listeners who are a lot younger, this is before Google actually existed, right? <laughs> Yahoo was the search engine of choice. That tells you how long ago it was. And, and the Journal of Accountancy in the back of the uh, trade magazine, the actual physical copy, not the digital copy, folks, was, uh, was a classified ad that talked about buying an accounting practice. And I was like, what the heck? That's a thing? And uh, I had no idea I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time. And I had no idea that was a thing. And that got me started um, towards that first acquisition in uh, August of 2004. I love it. So listen, I I don't want to spend a lot of the time here because, again, we did cover it in the original episode, episode seven. But just um, we mentioned 14 acquisitions. I mean, you did a chunk of those even in your first year in business or to get into business. Uh, just you know, just just give us like two minutes overview of that period, and then I really want to focus more on what um, you know we didn't get to talk about because it didn't happen yet. Uh, you know, on the last episode. Yeah, so I mean, the the first five, six, seven were all relatively small, under a million dollars. Certainly, some of them were under a hundred thousand dollars, and we we're really focused on getting to a core size that allowed my wife and I, because we started it together, to get to a size uh, where we could employ people and have a system. And then uh, probably in about deal seven or eight, I realized that other accounting firms and really other small businesses were not doing this as a growth strategy. Then it became very strategic. Before that, it was really just a, we got to get some breathing room here. Then it became a, oh boy, we found something that other people have not. And it became very strategic as we scaled from, you know, zero revenue in in the summer of 2004 to uh, about 12 million when we, uh, when we merged with Aprio in 2019. So, so, all right, so let's jump. So listen, folks, it really makes sense to listen to the other episode. It gets into more detail about, you know, how we, you know, did those deals, sort of the mindset, because, you know, listen, how many 
how many business owners of any type, how many, how many accountants certainly start an accounting firm and, you know, spend, you know, decades, you know, try to grow it organically and never do a deal, right? Or maybe they do a deal much later. You know, so there aren't many people like John who come out and say, you know, let's do five or six deals in, in, you know, in the first year or so and 14 deals. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of gold there. Um, but so now, John, you know, you get to, uh, you know, you get to this uh, sort, sort of critical mass. You're a very successful, you know, firm in the Carolinas. Uh, you've, you've personally moved from being an accountant to, you know, being an M&A uh, guy. And you wrote the book, Cracking the Code, which I, which I mentioned in, the, in your bio, which is fantastic. Um, and, um, you know, so what has, and, and I know you to be the consummate entrepreneur, right? You know, I mean, we're both, you know, been in an entrepreneurs organization for years together and you've been a leader there. Um, so, you know, it's gotta be a big decision for somebody like you to become a seller as opposed to a buyer and, uh, and go from becoming, you know, be, being the king to being one of the leaders, right? It's not, you know, you, you're not, you know, you don't go from king to peasant, but you, but you know, you have to share power, so to speak. So talk to us about that decision-making process of what had you choose to do the, uh, the sale. Yeah. So we looked, it was the spring of 2019 and Aprio and LBA, our, our, our prior name, had a very strong relationship uh, for a few years leading up to that. Richard Kopelman, our CEO, and I had become friends uh, from about 2014 or 15 on. And we're getting together every six months to share ideas about the profession. He had recently become CEO of the, of the firm that had been 60 years in the making before he became CEO. And he, and he was spending time with me trying to figure out what we were doing in deals um, and trying to learn. And we were sharing ideas and I was trying to figure out how, what it was like running a firm. He was running that size. And, um, and in the spring of 2019, we started to build our 2025 plan, the L, you know, in our North Carolina LBA firm. And when we started to look, we said, okay, we're going to double in size again. We had a rallying cry of 25 by 25, which was 25 million by 2025. And we looked at what that would take from a people, resource, technology, data analytics, all that sort of fun stuff. And we said, boy, this is going to take a different lift, a different strategy that it took to go from zero to 12. Yeah. And, um, and we all looked around and said, you know, maybe, maybe it's worth exploring. There's only one firm. You know, I've run across so many firms in the country. Aprio is the only one I've found that really was large, but was really an entrepreneurial firm. Uh, uh, you know, they're very different than most of the other large firms. And I said, well, let me just have a conversation and see what that would even look like. Let's start to have uh, some opening discussions. And, uh, and it led us down a path that, that said, you know what, we could continue as we, as we are till 2025. And we know what those investments are going to be, or we can hitch our wagon to somebody a little bit larger than us who's already made those investments in the last five years and, uh, and accelerate our growth significantly more and get out of some of the minutia. Yeah. Love it. And what, what was the relative size? I mean, again, you know, any question you don't feel comfortable answering, you know, just let me know. Uh, but what was the, you know, if, if you're willing to share, what was the relative size of the two firms at the time? Yeah, so we were about 12 million and about 70 people, and uh, Aprio was about 80 million and call it uh, 400, 375, 400 people. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that's a, that's a, that's a, always an interesting decision, right? You know, I mean, there's on the, on the buyer side, there's always the build it, buy it question, right? You know, do we build it and turn it or, or do we buy it? 
Uh, and then when you get to a certain stage, I mean, you know, I think it's a really important lesson that every entrepreneur learns if they, if they, if they have any growth, right? Is that you always get to these stages where what got you here won't get you there, right? I mean, you, you know, there's always like, you know, you get past the plateau and you have a certain range that you can grow in doing things a certain way, right? And then you get always get to a place where you can't just do more of that. You've got to do something different. You've got to make more investments in, you know, systems, technology, people, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, those are decision points. And, um, you know, so many, you know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of consolidation in the, uh, I mean, for many years now in the, in the uh, accounting world, um, you know, there, there seems to be, you know, larger firms and very small firms, you know, the, the medium-sized firms, you know, uh, don't, you know, don't seem to, there aren't that many of them, you know, at least what they yeah. used to be. Um, and I think it's because they get to that pivot point, right? It's sort of like, you know, what do you do at that point? Um, and do you really want to, I mean, making all that investment on your own and making that bet, you know, on your own may be the right move, but a lot of times it's not, right? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's funny. It, it might be the same in law firms, Corey. I'm not sure, but, you know, there's a lot of firms there's 44,000 approximately accounting firms, CPA firms, I should say, in the US. Like 43,000 are under two and a half million in revenue. Yeah. And, and even, even bigger than that is about 42,000 or 41,000 are under a million in revenue. So there's this gap. And then there's only about a thousand firms that are above a few million in revenue. And um, it's because you can make a really good living. You can provide a good service to your clients at a small firm for, for a small amount of services, right? But you can't do a whole lot of other things. And many accountants like being an accountant, not running a business. And as you get to a certain size, you had partners, you have employees, you got lots of different things going on. You got to worry about technology and automation and, and that's a business. And, uh, and so that's why I think there's a big void in that middle ground that you're discussing. And I don't know if it's the yeah. same for law firms. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's been a little more pronounced in, in accounting firms, but I think the trend is, you know, is there in law firms as well. I'm sure, I don't know the stats, but I'm sure they're very similar. I mean, you've got a lot of small, and in fact, even, even at our size, which is not, you know, um, as big as uh, what you guys were, you know, we're a little bit of an anomaly in that, you know, to have a, uh, you know, uh, like a seven person, you know, seven, eight person firm um, that handles the level of sophisticated work we do is somewhat unusual, you know, um, you know, uh, so yeah. it's been, you know, it's been an interesting personal journey for, for us. Um, so, all right. So now, so you come in, you come into this deal and, you know, you decide, Hey, this may be the right thing. Um, now what goes through your mind in terms of structuring a deal? Of course, you know, I was, I was kidding about, you know, you were the King, but I'm only half kidding. Cause there's right. I mean, there's some truth in that. It's nice to run your own show. Um, so, you know, for the firm in general, uh, and for you personally, to the extent, you know, what, what I was saying, you want to share, like, what were the things you thought about that, hey, you know, this needs to be in place for me to be able to, you know, for this deal to make sense for the firm as a whole and for me personally? Yeah, number one by a landslide was, so let's say there was 70 of us. There was always a question in my mind, would I be better off, right? That, that question existed. So, but, but the answer had to be that the other 69 people were better off after the transaction, maybe not the day after the transaction, but in the first six to 12 months, they were going to be better off. And I don't mean just financially, I mean, career driven opportunities, were they going to be able to do the passion that they had? If we only did say five different services, which is probably about right, maybe six. And, and, uh, and we went into a firm that currently has 25 different services, right? If you're a, yep. if you're a 
24 year old tax person and you really wanted to do M&A only as an example, at our 70 person firm, we could have done that where you would have spent maybe 25 to 40% of your time, but not full time. Sure. Well, at, at Aprio, we can have that. And so we actually had about six people in the first 12 or so months after totally change job choices within the firm, even though they stayed with us, they just changed exactly what they did. And, um, and that was to me, the definition, number one, that had to be the key and the cultures had to align. We would not have fit with an organization that was very bureaucratic. Um, and we also, it also would have been more of a struggle if we had overlapped in footprint. Um, Aprio at the time had an office in Birmingham, Alabama, and a couple offices in Atlanta, nothing in the Carolinas at all. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was important. We felt like that would, um, that would allow us to be the, you know, the shiny new penny, if you will, and, uh, and give us, and give us some, a little bit of autonomy and not, but also so that our people didn't overlap so that there wasn't duplication of resources in a region. Um, and then for me, it was, I had to make sure that I would be comfortable with the leader, right. Which is Richard Kopelman. And, um, and so, you know, fortunately in this case, I had some, I had five years of, of uh, dating, if you will, I'll right, use that. Right. I'll use that term lightly, uh, because we had become friends, and so I knew enough about his style, about who he was as a human, to know that that we would work really well together. Yeah, that's that's great. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, thinking about it from you know, like looking at the deal aspects, thinking about it from the apparatus side. Um, you know, one of the things I always talk about. I have a ten step process that I take clients through when they say, "Hey, I want to expand, right? I want to start doing deals to grow." Um, and let's, let's, you know, I mean, it applies to any kind of deals, but let's talk about M&A because that's what we're talking about here. And, um, you know, my, my first step is, is why, right? It's the, you know, Simon Sinek, everybody else talks about why. I mean, if you don't know your why about why you want to expand, it doesn't, you know, it, you know, you can't even, how do you even evaluate the kind of deals you want to do, who you're targeting, anything like that. So I always started with why, and, you know, it sounds to me, I mean, I'm just theorizing, obviously that part of April's why here was geographic expansion into a good, you know, market that they weren't already in. Right. So that's really makes sense. Um, and the great thing is that, you know, in my, pro- once they figure, so let's say that's, I'm sure they were otherwise, but let's take that why for them. Well, then if they're doing, you know, the process, right. Whether it's, you know, <laughs> not that I work with them, but you know, I'm sure they, they, they went through, okay. Why, so once you know you, why, then you can say, okay, who are you talking? Right. It's a very easy example. If you're wise, I want to expand it to geographic areas that we're not in. That could be that are, you know are good for us. We have the right demographics, whatever. Carolinas is one of them. Now you say, who are you targeting? Well, we're targeting firms in the Carolinas with certain other criteria that we're you know that we're comfortable with. Okay, great. Now that now they they know who to focus on. Then they had to come up with a value proposition for you guys, right? That's my step three, right? They've got to be able to attract somebody like you and your partners and your yep. employees to say, why would you come to them? So I'm sure they you know they. They had a value proposition for you. You should sort of shed some things that, that go towards that. Um, you know, and then and then my next, I won't go through all 10 steps, but the next two steps are then you build a model based upon you know the why, who you're targeting, and the value proposition. And then you have a deal structure that comes out of that model. So that's the first five steps of my 10. Um, so you know, some of that was was illustrated here. Clearly, geographic expansion is one of the whys, it sounds like Fabrio. Yeah, for sure. The geographic expansion was number one. Uh, and number two was was continuing to build talent. Uh, our profession as a whole is a talent grab. I mean that in a good way because the talent, we're, our firms are only as good as the people inside of them. We're a professional services firm. And so 
um, certainly part of the way the way Aprio does deals and the way that we're focused on them now is there is a large percentage of the deal that is very specific to the humans that are there. And that means we're not as likely to do a deal where uh, it's not that it doesn't happen, but we're not as likely to do a deal where the people are a year away from retirement as an example, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're swapping equity and they're staying to build and grow a team and they're energized and, and they're people that um, people want to follow, right? Both, both team members and clients, not that they need to be the market leader in the largest or anything like that in their market, but you have to feel like the leader has some passion for the profession, for the firm, whatever, to be, to get the followers. Cause you know, and I know the, the studies continuously show that people leave jobs, not because they're necessarily mad at the company, they're mad with their current manager. And if that person can't reflect leadership, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's a great illustration. Like you said, you know, um, when I start talking about the why and who you're targeting, um, you said, you know, like you're not generally targeting, not that, you know, a deal might not come along that you're going to do it, but, but everybody's not generally targeting, you know, retiring, um, you know, uh, accountants. Now there may be another firm out there that that's exactly who they're targeting, right? Yes. So like there's a different model. I mean, there, there could be very good deals that could be done to buy out books of, you know, of retiring advice, especially if you have younger professionals who, you know, you can feed that business to, um, yep. You know, so, uh, but that's a totally different deal structure and model and approach and target and, you know, than you know, than what, what, what Aprio seems to be doing. And you got to know what, you know, what you focused on. Yeah. And um, you know, what's funny is from 2004 till 2012, my strategy in acquisitions was looking for the retiring, uh, you know, firm, the retiring partner, whatever. And in 2012, we actually pivoted to, it was okay if there was, if there, let's say it was a two partner firm. It was okay if one of the partners was retiring, but if both were retiring, we weren't interested at that point because we were looking for more leaders to help us build the business long-term. And so we actually had to change. We changed our strategy as we grew for what we were looking for. Yeah. And it is amazing nowadays in, in so many fields where talent acquisition is the main driver a lot of times, you know, and it's because it is, listen, I, I mean, you know, I, I've been, I, I need another high level, you know, attorney uh, who's entrepreneurial and, and with all due respect to my fellow attorneys, uh, th- that combination is not common, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, and um, yeah, I mean, and when I say I need it, I mean, you know, we, I, I, I mean, we, we handle, you know, what we have very well now, but I, there are growth opportunities that I am not pursuing like that are just right in front of me. And as an entrepreneur that, you know, how much that drives you crazy, but like, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I can bring in X hundreds of thousands of what, you know, business just from this one strategy. And I'm not pursuing them because I'm not going to pursue anything. We don't have capacity to, to handle and handle really well. So, you know, my, my biggest choke point in my business is talent acquisition. You know, it's not, you know, I, I had somebody reach out to me uh, on LinkedIn, you know, um, saying, Hey, you know, I'm putting together this mastermind group of attorneys you know, to help you get more revenue and more clients. And I, I'm like, I get that a lot of people may need that. That's not my issue. I don't need help with that. But you know, the talent to actually, you know, handle those more revenues. I can go get that on my own. That's when you so, reply and say, can you share the list of people that registered for this webinar? So exactly. that I can, because those people are struggling with an issue that I'm not, and maybe they'll come work for me. That's right. If they're great, <laughs> if they're great attorneys and whatever, and they, you know, they need more business, that's, you know, um, so yeah, so it's but it's but it's it really is interesting in terms of trends, John. You know that that um, 
I don't remember a time, and I've been doing this for 35 years. You've been doing it for a little, little less, but close, right? You know, yeah, 20 plus. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I feel like I don't remember a time when talent acquisition was more of a driver for deals than, than right now. I'm not saying it, it's always been a factor, but I feel like there are so many industries, professional services, certainly, but even, you know, tech. I mean, I know people, I know, I know some people who are tech recruiters, right? Whatever. Again, their, their issue is not finding the companies that to be their clients who they can place people in. Their issue is finding the people to place them, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, in my experience, at least, that's been a trend that's, you know, I, I have never seen it uh, where, where a talent acquisition is more of a driver of deals uh, than, than at this time. I agree. I think it's, and I think for us, for me, at least it's been the last 12 to 36 months has been sort of that key up and right. And it's continuing. And I don't see that turning the corner anytime in the near future, near future being next, you know, 12 to 24. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't look day to day. I'm not that, I'm not that smart that I can predict the turn <laughs> that quickly. Um, but I think, I think that talent acquisition is a big part of it. And I think it's a combo of, um, you know, there's, there's leaders who aren't retiring. I think it's a combination of our workforce staying longer, which is good. Why do we lose the talent when they turn 60 or 58 or 65 or whatever the age is, you know, that, that somebody has in their mind. And then we're also looking to pass on that leadership and skill to a younger generation. And sometimes we need to acquire that talent because we're either having trouble within a market or because we're, you know, growing so fast and we just can't hire fast enough. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right. So you guys, so now you come into Taprio, right? And, and um, you know, your role in Aprio is not to sit and review tax returns or financial <laughs> statements or whatever, right? So why, why don't you talk, I mean, you alluded to it, but why don't you talk about your role in Aprio? And then, and then you know, I want to go to this deal that you guys just announced uh, two days ago, which is a big, you know, I, I saw it, uh, the announcement before uh, you and I even connected. I was like, that's, that's, a, that's a nice deal. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's start with your role in, in Aprio. Yep. So I'm currently uh, I'm the regional managing partner for the South Atlantic, which includes uh, North and South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Um, so our teams there, I, I sort of rotate between the offices. I spend some time in Nashville with our team in Nashville. Uh, and, and most of my time is spent on growth strategies within our markets and people growth strategies, right? Leadership. I spend time with some young partners, young, not necessarily in age, but young in their leadership style. Maybe yeah. they're new to this role. Maybe they're new to the firm or whatever. And I'm spending time one-on-one -on -one coaching them either on a monthly or a quarterly basis within my team. Um, and then I sit on the board of directors for the firm. Um, so I'm, I'm one of the six that helps guide the strategy uh, for the firm. And then uh, I focus a lot of my time, no surprise, on merger and acquisition strategy for clients, not just my clients, but clients in general. And then uh, for the firm, I'm spending a lot of time on our firm's growth strategy related to mergers and acquisitions. I love it. So um, have you, before this, uh, before we get to this deal, it was just announced, uh, since you've been there, have you done other deals before that? Um, or is this the first big one? Uh, yep, I've done, uh, I've, I've had a strong hand in uh, five deals since uh november of 19 <laughs> i love it i love it see yeah john doesn't sit around whether it's uh, when he started his firm or you know or now so oh yeah so, well, and those you know i were... think that's part of it you, you say earlier if i rewind you know 10 minutes to a question you asked about what's in it for me what yeah. was in it for me partly was i 
as we got bigger from zero to 70 people, I, each time we got larger, I got to do less of what I didn't like to do and more of what I like to do. Yes. That was, that was me. That's not everybody, but that was me. And, um, and when we jumped into Aprio, I got to even do more of that. And so I got to mo focus more on strategy, more on coaching leadership and more help, help with uh, growth and acquisition strategy for the firm. And so that to me was, you know, you got to be passionate for what's next. I love it. And listen, uh, listeners and viewers, you've heard me many times talk about what my concept, you know, what I call highest and best use. Uh, you know, ideally, all, all of us, certainly as, as founders, owners, CEOs, leaders, whatever, you know, uh, we should be doing working towards spending every minute we can uh, doing our highest and best use areas, which for me are, are uh, it's something that you're great at, but that's not enough because listen, I'm sure John's great at certain accounting things that he never wants to do again. Like at, <laughs> I could be great at drafting documents. I never want to draft the document again. Fortunately, I've had a team that's been drafting documents for a long time for me. Um, so you got to be great at it though. You got to be passionate about it. You got to love doing it. And a lot of people stop there, but my third one has got to be highly leveraged. It's got to make a big difference for the firm. It's got to move the needle. Um, so, you know, I hear, I hear that's what you're talking about. You're like, Hey, part of what, you know, you were doing that internally in your own firm by, you know, building a team and all that kind of stuff. But this even got you to jump further to be able to spend more of your time in your highest and best use areas, which is, yep. which is, you know, the great thing about that is it's phenomenal for the firm and it's phenomenal for the person because, you know, we're all much more happy and thrilled and excited when we're doing stuff that we, you know, that meets that criteria and, and it, it, you know, it makes a bigger difference for the, for the, for the company. Yep. It is. And, and the teams, the, the teams, it's not just me, but the teams seem to be really uh, engaged with that too. Again, you know, the bigger we've gotten, the more they've been able to specialize and do just what they're passionate about. Yeah. yeah that's fantastic. All right. So, uh, so with the, the other acquisitions you did before this one, we're about to talk about were, were more just, traditional accounting firm yep. acquisitions? Yep. Okay. All right. So let's jump to the one that you announced two days ago, because this is something that's not just a traditional, not to, not to minimize the traditional, uh, you know, acquisitions, which are very nice and important to growth or whatever, but this is something more significant or different, right? It is. It's very different. It's uh, it's not a traditional accounting tax or consulting at all. It's nothing, nothing like that. It's a, it's a alliance. And so it's a, it's an alliance of accounting firms and it's taking a division out of a much larger firm. We were lucky enough to uh, take a division out of RSM, uh, which for those of you who don't know is a top five or six, depending on which survey you look at accounting firm in the world and, uh, and billions in revenue, very large firm. And, uh, and so it's a, it's very exciting and just announced uh, two days ago and uh, I get to help lead it uh, over the next, you know, 10 years as part of our growth strategy. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, again, to the extent you want to reveal, you know, what was the, what was the strategic, you know, analysis? Like, you know, what, what, what was the why, right? You know, yep. and, and what, you know, because this is a different acquisition. So what were the reasons to do this deal uh, from the Aprio point of view? 
Yep. So it's, it's really two things. Number one, we had what we considered a channel partnership uh, for the last four or five years, which really related to um, small to mid-size accounting firms, call it the one to 10 or one to $20 million firm mm-hmm. um, who couldn't provide all the services their client needed or wanted because they didn't have the, the, the expertise, right? It may be that they needed international tax planning and they didn't have anybody who specialized in international tax. It may have been, you know, something very specific in state and local tax. So we've had that for a number of years and we help today approximately 60 firms across the U.S. with those specialty services. So they're, they're reaching out to us. We're providing consulting advisory services directly to the firms to help their clients. And, and that way they don't lose the client. They keep the client. Right. The client's happy. Jimmy or Susie is still their person. They just needed this extra little piece of help and they got it from us. Yep. Um, so that's, that's what we've had for a few years. But what we've what in the pandemic we found us helping a lot with was uh, practice management stuff for small firms, right? This was a really rough couple of years for accounting and consulting and probably law firms too. Um, with just the number of laws that have been passed, the amount of the amount of things clients have had to deal with, you put all that together and it's a real challenge. And so we've been we've been helping small firms and mid-sized firms with that. This allows us to formalize it in a much different manner because RSM had built out this platform over the last 15 years around helping small to mid-sized firms. And so now we get to adopt that and take it and make it, you know, apriofied and change it a little bit. Uh, but but only things we're going to add are value add. We're not taking anything away. We're taking all the services they currently do. And we're continuing to provide practice management, consulting expertise to those firms. And honestly, I love giving back. You know this about me. I love giving back to the to the entre- to the other entrepreneurs, right? And in this case, there are other accounting firms that have built practices, and so I love I love reaching down and and finding ways to help them. And so, so just so I understand a little bit, listeners, so what makes this platform that RSM built different from just you know like the consulting and help you were given, right? Like what what is what is the the um, the, the difference? Yep. So th- so they have built a, like a product series, I'll say, right? They productized it such that um, they there's a licensing fee that's paid from the from the small firms to the to RSM now to be Aprio, which includes uh, continuing education on a yearly basis for all their team members. It includes uh, some leadership training. Uh, they get like six different options in leadership training. It includes um, coaching and and practice management on a quarterly basis. Uh, it includes roundtable sort of sharing. Think about in our world forum type stuff, it, yep. uh, except within the profession. It includes a conference on an annual basis amongst their peers, amongst the 35 to you know 70 members that'll be at a conference. Um, it includes some some proprietary surveys so that you can compare yourself against the industry benchmark. Mm-hmm. With, benchmark. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's a lot of what it is is uh, is that analysis and then and then there's other stuff that it can include if the firm wants it to things like you know we could lead corporate retreats if they have partner retreats on a yearly basis we can help lead those and we already know a lot about their business we already have a lot of data on it we can really help you know guide the direction and, and share and be a resource for them and then yes. and then the last thing is technical technical resources, they have like a, I'll say an 800 number to us that allows them to get any technical question uh, answered. Because if you're a 20 person accounting firm, you might not have the deep 
uh, expertise that a 700 person firm might. And so that allows them to have, you know, that extra phone a friend, if you will, from Regis uh, many years ago. Got it. And I'm assuming that this acquisition came along with a bunch of talent as well, right? You know, you didn't actually, it's the first acquisition I've ever done. No humans are coming. No humans. Wow. Okay. First time ever. I've never done a deal like, uh, I mean, except if you go back to 2004, when we acquired a sole practitioner who had no employees, other than that, it's never happened. I've never done a deal like this. And uh, it's, it's definitely different. Interesting. Okay. So now you guys are going to, you know, obviously because there are, there are humans that even, the, even if it's a tech, mostly a tech play and it's online, whatever, there are humans necessary, right. To, uh, you know, so you guys are going to be able to integrate this and use, use your existing uh, talent and, or maybe hire some folks to, to be able to run this thing, huh? Yep. We're going to have a couple of hires that we'll announce in the next couple of weeks. And, um, and one that will be a direct leader of the, of the Alliance. And, uh, and then the other will be more of an administrative, but, and then long-term in probably about a year from now, we'll hire an extra learning and development person specific to this. And so there are some hires that'll happen along the way, but, um, but a lot of it to your point is we have a lot of these resources already. And so just a portion of their time is going to be allocated to helping serve these firms, which everybody's really engaged and excited about. I love it. Um, do you, uh, do you know, and is it appropriate to share what RSM's motivation was for selling uh, this thing that they built? Yep. So RSM is really focused on trying to help the firms. And they felt like um, that we would potentially help in a different way, right? They have built this thing for 15 years and, uh, and they felt like they got it where it could get, but that we could probably be the transition that could help these firms for the next 15 years. And I say next 15, but uh, it'll be longer than that, but you know what I mean? Um, And and they felt like they did everything they could and they were going to focus their time and efforts. They have another Alliance that's for really large firms. Um, It's for really large firms and, and they're going to focus their attention and time on that, which is why no people are coming along They're They're going to keep the people and focus on the bigger, the bigger Alliance. Got it. Interesting. Interesting. So listen, I know that, I mean, I know you personally, and I know that you are really driven and, you know, and through EO and other ways, you've so given to, you know, entrepreneurs at various levels and, and helping them grow. So I know there's a, I know that's part of the pure motivation of this to be able to make a difference for folks. I'm sure there's some economics in it. So you guys make some money, although my guess is, you know, that this is not, you know, this is not, you know, going to be the, you know, the way, this is not going to be the huge revenue driver for the, for the firm, you know, that wasn't it. Um, but I can see that there's another possibility that comes out of it because it's always what the way my strategic mind works. I mean, you're building relationships with all of these small firms. I could imagine that, you know, some of them, and I'm not saying this is the primary reason you did it, but I can't imagine that some of them might not then become potential tuck in, you know, um, targets for the, for, for the firm as you get to know folks, uh, potentially. I mean, I think there's natural, if you build relationships, no matter what it is, right? I mean, there's natural, I mean, if I look at my acquisitions, right? Even my discussion about what I did with Richard, I had known him for five years. I knew that I aligned with him. So when it came time, when we looked at our future, they were really the only firm we were going to explore. We were going to keep it ourselves or or merge in. And I think that that's a natural fit. Uh, RSM over the decades that they've had the larger alliance. I don't know if they've ever done any of this, any of the small firm, just because it's such a big size difference, but in their larger firm alliance, they've done a handful of deals. They usually do one every three to four years with one of those firms because they share philosophies, they share management styles, they share a lot of different things. And so I think that, uh, I think that's, 
it, it could happen. Definitely a probably number 50 on the driver of the top 50 reasons, but it definitely could happen because if people share similar philosophies and they become friends over a period of years, it's natural, I think. Yeah, it's great. And, and um, yeah, I think, you, you know, you're providing such a great service for, you know, for the industry. And listen, it's like in any industry, there are always, um, you know, there, there are just things the way you need excess capacity and help and whatever is a smaller firm. You just can't, you know, I mean, um, I mean, I remember, um, so early, early in my, when I started my firm, I had, I had a good tax guy who was independent, but it's uh, as a lawyer, right? I, I mean, the accounting firms, you know, whatever I'll coordinate with, but sometimes you need a tax lawyer, right? And, uh, and, you know, frankly, for from my size, they're, they're hard to find. Most of them are at big law firms or accounting firms or in-house of companies. Um, and, and, you know, because again, we do stuff that's more sophisticated than a lot of firms outside, we need quality domestic and international, you know, tax and deal, you know, deal tax lawyers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I will say, you know, uh, um, I don't know, over a decade ago, I had a gap where like, I didn't have a good solution for that. Right. And, you know, it affected my competitiveness. There were deals I lost because they went to firms that had in-house tax capacity. Um, you know, I found the firm about 10 years ago uh, that was brilliant. They're, they're a law firm of all major tax lawyers coming out of big firms and they decide, they realized there was a gap in the, in the market for firms like ours. And he, they essentially, they don't, they don't market directly to clients at all. Uh, they market themselves to sophisticated, smaller firms that need sophisticated tax to be their outsourced tax department. Uh, and it's a brilliant business model, you know? And, yeah. and I, I actually took them on a cold call because I was like, this actually sounds, you know, like, you know, 10 plus years ago, maybe a decade ago now. And it's been amazing because I now have, uh, you know, and we obviously coordinate with the accountants as well, but I now have uh, tax capacity that rivals any of the big firms, uh, you know, because, you know, these guys have such great experience and, and they built a brilliant business model, which is entrepreneurs, you know, like I, I know you and I get uh, shared over the years. We're always fascinated by, by people who figure out cool entrepreneurial models. Um, but yeah, uh, they saw it and they filled a gap. They, they, they a gap. noticed an issue, a competitive disadvantage, and they helped find the gap that that could make smaller firms competitive against larger firms. That's amazing. That's I right. love it. That's right. And, and obviously, and it's very similar. I mean, you know, it's not it's not apples to apples, but there's some similarities in that they help a firm like mine, you know, have stronger capacity. They're not competing for my clients. I have no right. worry that they're going to look to, you know, because they don't do the corporate work, they don't whatever. And obviously the whole model is based upon being, you know, having a relationship. So they're not going to steal the yep. clients away. Um, and, uh, you know, and for them, you know, they don't have to pitch client by client. They, what they do is they, they get in with a certain number of quality law firms and then they get fed the business, you know? So, yep. you know, it's a, it's, it's a great model. So, you know, there's some similarities to, this platform where you can provide some expertise, access services for these folks, they can rely upon it. It helps them uh, serve their clients better, um, you know, and, and maintain those relationships. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. We, we say it helps them punch above their weight class, right? So yeah. like, if you think about MMA or, or professional boxing, you know, weight classes, and it's hard for a small guy to beat up a, a large guy or the same for a girl. Um, and so this allows the smaller firms to punch above their weight class. A 20 person accounting firm can act like a hundred person accounting firm. They, they might not be able to do all the work and they might not make all the margin on it, but that's okay. They still win the core of the client. They still get 90% of the workload. They just can't do this 10% and they use right. us as their outsource. And if they can't do the 10%, they at times actually risk losing the 90%. So, yes. 
Yeah, so totally get it. All right, so uh, I just want to take a moment because we will wrap up. I'm going to get to my last two questions, but you know, we've been talking mostly about you know your journey because I think it's always it's great and it's illustrative. But of course, you continue to do and have for many years done you know a significant amount of M and A work for your clients. Uh, and you know, we did allude to a couple of trends out you know out there around talent, whatever. But you know, just give me a quick. What are you seeing in you know out there in the market? You know, uh, these days. I mean, obviously, we are semi post COVID. You know, whatever. And uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, I mean, I I've talked a little bit on this podcast about the interesting way that COVID has uh, adversely impacted or and positively impacted different sectors. Um, but you know, what what are you seeing these days? We're seeing a trend, a couple of things. We're seeing more cash in deals than we've seen in the last 10 years. 100%. Maybe not as much as we had in 2005 and six, maybe, but we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of cash in deals more so. And I think it's, I think it's a couple of things. There's more competition for a deal, but yep. there's also more cash on the sidelines because people have spent less and some have received some of this government funding that's been handed around. And, uh, and so there's more cash in deals. I think that's one major trend. Yep. The other is when somebody's, um, somebody's made a decision, they seem to want to get out a lot faster than they would have before. Um, I, I, that's a combo of tax. That's a combo of they don't want to deal with the next COVID downfall. They don't want to deal with the next Delta variant, right? They, when they want to get out before the E variant or the F variant or whatever comes out. Um, and I think those are, the, those are a couple of the reasons. And then the other thing I'd say is um, we're finding that we don't see too many people interested in turnaround projects. So where maybe a handful of years ago, ah, I'll take a stab at that because I think I can turn it around. Right now, we're not seeing any turnaround deals. And I think it's because people are afraid that it's not a business that can be turned around. Maybe it got so affected by COVID that that is I hate this word, the new normal, and they're afraid that that's the business model in the future. And so I think uh, those are some of the trends we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I 100% agree with all of them. I'm seeing the same thing. It's a lot of money out there, boy, a lot of private equity. I mean, a lot of money and coming into segments, you know, I do a lot in financial services, which most people know. I mean, God, there was no money in that space 10, 12, 15 years ago. I mean, you couldn't even get a bank to lend. And now the, the money that's get, getting thrown around and the deals that are getting done, you know, are, are, are crazy. Well, you know, uh, things are getting silly in M&A when private equity acquires an accounting firm in New York City, which happened uh, <laughs> three weeks ago or something as, uh, as Eisner Amper, uh, you know, which is a large, I mean, it's a mega yeah. firm. They're a top 25 firm in the country, took on private equity. And that's, uh, that's I, to my knowledge, that's never happened in the accounting profession. So that tells you how exciting uh, and how much money there is on the sidelines if, if pegs want to get into accounting. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, because I mean, no, nobody, I mean, even the successful accounting firms have never been, you know, defined as unicorns or like, you know, like, you know, like not even close, right? That kind of growth that you would think private equity is normally looking for. But yeah, but um, yeah, I had, uh, who is it? Um, it might have been one of the investments I had recently, you know, was talking about how private equity money is coming down market, you know, and, the, and the, you know, it definitely, it definitely is not, I'm not saying that the eyes of the deals down market is still right. busy, but the point is, yeah, I mean, it's down market in that, in that, um, the return expectations, right? You know, that not everybody, you, private equity is not only going into the next Facebook or Tesla, right? It's going into other, you know, more sort of, you know, conventional growth, you know, still high growth, but not mega unicorn growth, you know, yep. um, industries. Yeah, no question. 
Well, John, we could talk forever, and I always love uh, whether it's on the podcast or whether it's hanging out at an EO event or whatever. You know, you and I, we have so many common interests and, you know, love this stuff, and we could talk about it forever. However, we are uh, approaching the end of our time here. So um, I just wanted uh, two final questions. One is uh, people want to find out more about you, not only at Aprio, but you're also, so obviously, we mentioned your book, you do speaking. Um, what's the best place for them to go? Yep. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, John Bly CPA, same on Twitter, same handle. Uh, or you can email me. It's john.blyblly at aprio, aprio.com. Awesome. And my final question, which is also different from what the one I asked back on episode seven, um, is uh, freedom is my highest ideal in life. Uh, and to me, that means everything from freedom from all people in the world from oppression to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in, you know, 30 something years, right? Um, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Freedom to me means I get to decide yes or no. I get to decide on, the, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, how I set my calendar, how I do my activities and, and, uh, and not be mandated to do something that I really am not engaged in or not excited about. And I think um, that applies in both business and life. Um, and, you know, I got three kids. And so sometimes I might have less freedom than, uh, than I did, but it, but those things are, uh, are really critical to how I make decisions because I'd, I like to have time around, not necessarily work less, by the way, it's the time I want it to be on things that I really actually enjoy. I don't like doing things that I don't like to enjoy. I'm too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> and folks, John's not that old, but, uh, but yes, he's too old for that. We all should be old too old, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yep. Love it. John Bly, thank you so much for being a phenomenal return guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate you having me, buddy. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.